I get amused at times at things particularly young people say. I had to kind of settle down last Sunday so I could preach because after the Bible study, a grandfather told me what his little grandson had said to his mother explaining why he had a poor grade on a certain class in school. He said, well, don't blame me. She was on his case pretty heavy. He said, don't blame me. They took God out of schools. So, you know, you can always find someone to blame if, if you're needing to do that. I don't know the exact connection, but there must be one. When I think about love, probably one of the more abused concepts today that you can think about. If you can think about a country song without love, dog, prison, mama, then uh, it's, it's a very unusual song. But I wonder how many people today use the concept and have no earthly idea what it means. You know, God in his word is more precise than the umbrella word for love. In fact, there are different concepts, as you know, in the New Testament that are translated love. We're going to be looking today at three dimensions of biblical love. Not necessarily what people think about it, but what God says about it. I'm going to be keying on two found in the New Testament, Luke 10 and Matthew 22. But by way of introduction, I want to go back to the background of these particular statements in Luke 10 and Matthew 22. We go all the way back to the Deuteronomy, the repeating of the law or the second law. And imagine a mass assembly of people out on the plains of Moab, and Moses is repeating the law, sometimes called the second law. And in it, he had given a review and an explanation of God's covenant, the Ten Commandments in particular. And then over in chapter 6, he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind. Now let me remind us of something. He is talking to the survivors of that 40-year trek through the wilderness. Can you imagine how many funerals those folks had attended in that 40-year period? When that older generation had died... They must have been having funerals constantly. You know, sometimes it is easy to love God. You know, the sun is shining, sky is blue, things are going well with you. But sometimes it may not be all that easy. Just imagine all of these people being buried out there in that wilderness. Funerals constantly. And... They had even, the people had concluded, they said, God hates us. And Moses is trying to remind them, no, God doesn't hate you. God loves you. And you're to love God. You're to love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. So there are times in life it's easy to love God. It really is. And then there are times in life it may be a real challenge to love God. 
When you are bearing a child, that's a challenge. When you're bearing a spouse, that's a challenge. You're bearing a father or a mother. Or you stand helplessly by when a dear loved one is caught in the grip of excruciating pain through a malignancy or maybe a challenge to love God. I had a dear friend, he and his wife had a son that had a, lots of difficulties and the boy finally died an early death. And I was close enough to this man that I could ask him the question and I did. I said, what about your love for God? He said, well, I still love him. But I remember we were sitting in that emergency waiting room, waiting for the doctor to tell us if our boy was going to live or die. And he said, I looked at my wife and I said, you know, we've talked to God many times about this. Yes, easy to love God when things are going well. Challenge to love God when they aren't. So Moses is saying to these people now, that had buried all of those individuals in that 40 years in the wilderness. You're to love God. Can you possibly require love or command love? If you're thinking about just a sentiment, that may be rather difficult. I remember when I had the honor of preaching for this church, one Sunday morning we were having a Bible class and I just raised the question, what is love? The lady who answered has been in eternity for a long time, but I'll never forget her answer. I could tell you her name. She said, love is a feeling that you have that you've never felt before. See the key? Feeling. Well, that may be true in the minds of a lot of people. It's a feeling. It's a sentiment. It's an emotion. But biblical love is beyond that. And Brother Winkler referred to Agape love. Agapao, if I really agapao somebody. That's active goodwill. It has been explained as benevolence in action. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Now, if you look at that statement, there is an interesting explanation of the nature of man in that statement. You, uh, among your very nature, have a mind. And that's a marvelous thing. It is interesting, if you key on the mind, that here is something beyond the material. And it's a type of apologetic, of, of God's reality. There's an interesting book entitled The Spiritual Brain, in which a neuroscientist, Dr. Mario Beauregard is arguing for the reality of the mind to be a repudiation of materialism. And materialism stalks the land today. In fact, if you pick up a book like uh, Dr. Philip Johnson's book on defeating Darwinism by opening minds, I think it's on page 86, he says you have to understand the basic philosophy of evolution and it's materialism. The only reality is material reality. Well, as Dr. Beauregard points out in this book, uh, the placebo is a repudiation of the materialistic nature of the mind. Studies for medications, as you know, will usually have two groups. One group will take the real medicine, and the other group will take a placebo. 
They just think they're taking the real medicine. And ironically, many of the folks get well through a placebo. The mind is something distinct from that which is material. I'm working on an article on the apologetic of the mind. The reality of God as seen in our minds. So you, you could look at what Moses said and what's quoted over here in Luke 10 and Matthew 22 as really an apologetic for God. The reality of the mind. But with that background, let's go first of all to a dimension of love that points up to God. And then second, we'll look at a dimension that points to our neighbor. And then finally, we'll look at the third dimension that points to ourselves. Now let's go with Luke 10. Jesus had sent the 70 out on that mission, uh, getting people ready for the kingdom. And uh, there was a lawyer, a man that really knew Jewish law, that said, Teacher, what's the great commandment of the law? And how shall I here inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what is written in the law and how do you read it? You know, those are two fundamental questions in dealing with the word of God. What does it really say and how do I really read it? Do I read it with an open mind and a sincere heart? Uh, or do, do I read it through prejudicial glasses? How do you read it? And what's written? And the man knew. He said, quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 6, You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, I'll paraphrase, said, You're right. You have answered correctly. This do, and you will live. But now look at verse 26 when he says, But this man willing to justify himself. Aren't we all operating there many times? He, willing to justify himself, said, and who is my neighbor? Is my neighbor determined by proximity? Or is there something else that determines the identification of my neighbor? You know how Jesus answered that. He answered it with a story. The one who was the master storyteller told about a man going from Jerusalem down to Jericho fell among thieves and robbers, and they beat him, robbed him, and left him by the wayside to die. And a very religious fellow came by, a priest, and he looked and he just walked by on the other side. Another religious fellow came by, a Levite, and he looked and he walked by on the other side. And then a Samaritan came by. You know that mixed breed? They were kindly uh, looked down upon. He came by and he saw the man and immediately started giving attention. Did whatever he could for him, took him into the town, told the innkeeper, you take care of him and uh, whatever is owed, I will pay. And Jesus asked the question, now, who, who was neighbor? And the man couldn't miss it. I mean, if, if you could see the sun when it's shining in high noon, you could see that. And he said, the one that showed mercy. And Jesus said, that's right. Do this and you will live. Love God. That's the first dimension. And like I said, sometimes it's easy to love God. And sometimes it's a challenge. You may question, 
does God really love me? That's what these folks were doing. In fact, if you go back and start reading chapter 1, you'll find where they said, God hates us. That's why we're out in this dilemma here in this wilderness. God hates us. They were wrong about that. God really loved them. One of the best ways I have found to study the love of God is take the little book of 1 John, just five chapters, doesn't take you very long to read it, and you're going to read nine or ten times in that little book, that profound little book, about the love of God. And sometimes it's going to be in an objective, as technically they would say an objective genitive, and sometimes a subjective genitive. In other words, will it be God's love for me or my love for God? It's all laid out so beautifully in this little book of 1 John. In chapter 2, if you get down to about verse 4 and 5, particularly verse 4 and 5, Whoso keepeth his word, truly or verily in him is the love of God perfected. It's brought to maturity. It is definitely a reality. Now, my love for God is going to demonstrate itself. 1 John 5 and 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. But what about God's love for me? 1 John 4.10, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You'll find propitiation used more than once in 1 John. And when you look at the etymology of that word propitiation, it is a fascinating background. In fact, when uh, the translators of the Hebrew Bible, the, which they call the Septuagint translation, when they were translating it, and they were identifying the parts of the most holy place of the tabernacle and later the temple. When, uh, when they wanted a word to identify that uh, mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the word that they used is the very word that is translated propitiation. I learned that several years ago and it just opened up a little hymn to me that I had sung many times but had never really caught the impact of it. And uh, it's found beneath the mercy seat. I'm sure you've sung that little hymn. There, there on eagle's wings we soar, and sin and sense see all no more. And heaven comes down our souls to meet, and glory crowns the mercy seat. When they were translating that mercy seat, they used that word, Hilsteron, which is propitiation over in the New Testament. I have a mercy seat, and my mercy seat is my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. It starts with love for God and sent his son to be the propitiation, to be our mercy seat. And uh, for people whose hearts have not been so hardened by sensualism or secularism or rank indifference, love begets love. You know, First John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. Now, I have sung about love, the love of God. I have preached about the love of God. But when I come back to it and start studying it again, I commence to see, you know, it like, 
like the fellow tried to capture it in that song. Could I with ink the ocean fill, were the earth of parchment made, and every blade of grass a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, and the world as a whole could not contain the scroll, though it stretched from sky to sky. What's he saying? It is impossible to adequately describe the profound love of God. Now, when you think about it, this is love. Here's the manifestation of love, that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, you think about it, folks, and, and Jesus leaving the security of heaven, the songs of the angels, and identifying with us in a human form. You've read Philippians 2. You know, he existed in the form of God. But he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. And that's probably one of the understatements of the New Testament. The Lord humbled himself, left the beauty of God's heaven, left the glory of the throne of God and identified with us to hear what? The applause of men? No. To hear their blasphemies and all manner of false accusation. And even while he's baptized in pain on the cross, that human language would be in poverty to ad adequately describe what is he hearing. Oh, if you're the son of God, come down off the cross and we'll believe you. You saved others, let's see you save yourself. What would you have done that day? May I tell you? I know the heart of God's people. You would have wept. We all would have been weeping. And you know something? God held back, back the armies of heaven when he could have dispatched the angels and stopped that whole shameful scene. You think it meant anything to God? For his suffering son to say, why hast thou forsaken me? You think God was indifferent? And we're not told what was happening in heaven. But I wouldn't be surprised to learn that the angels were actually weeping. This whole shameful scene so terrible that the sun wouldn't even look on it. You know, the day you don't think God loves you, go back to the cross. Take your Bible and march across the centuries back to Golgotha and look at the Son of God suffering and bleeding and dying for you and for me. And you'll know, you will know, God really does love me. The devil may have brought a lot of pain on me. The devil may have robbed me of a precious treasure. But God still loves me. And one day he'll take care of all of this. So when I think about loving God, Moses said, you shall love the Lord your God. Well, Moses, did God know it when I had to bear my daddy? Did God know it when I had to bear my mother? Did God know it 
when I had to bear my son. Sure he knew it. It's like a man walked into the office of the late J.W. McGarvey one day. This man's boy had died. The broken-hearted man said, Brother McGarvey, where was God the other day when my boy died? Brother McGarvey said, same place he was when his son died. Yeah, God knows the pain. So, when I read 1 John 4:19, we love him because he first loved us. That is absolutely the truth. Now you've read John 3:16. You could quote John 3:16 about the love of God, but it's not just words. It's reality. And then when I get into 1 John 2 and look at verse 4, the man that does the will of God or keeps the commandments of God, and him verily is the love of God perfected. And it's interesting when you read through 1 John and, and you read three or four times, he talks about love being perfected, brought to maturity, a, a reality brought to maturity. And then when you get into chapter 2, and how many times have you read this one? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, is that objective or sub subjective? Is that God's love for me or my love for God? So you see, sometimes you'll read in this book that herein is the love of God manifested, that he gave his son to be the perpetuate. That's God's love for us. But you read 1 John 5 and 3. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. That's my love for God. You know, it's easy to talk about love. But the acid test of my love for my God is my willingness to obey him. That's the test. And so, this is the love of God. This is my love for God being shown that I obey him. I don't find his commands a burden to be born, but a privilege to be experienced, however demanding it may be and difficult it may be. The first dimension of love is straight up to God Almighty. Love God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. And then let's look at the second dimension of love. And I want to go this time over to Matthew 22. Jesus has made the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem to the acclaim even of the children. Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus is immediately having his confrontation with some of the religious leaders. You remember they brought him the question, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? And Jesus said, uh, give me a coin. Whose inscription is on it? They said, Caesar's. He said, well, you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. No problem with the Lord. And then the Sadducees, you know, those materialists of that day, didn't believe in angels or spirits or the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees came, and based on the Leverett marriage law of the Old Testament, they wanted to know about a situation where a man had married a woman and he died before they had children, and the Leverett marriage law said that his brother was to marry the widow, and the first child, the first male born, would take the name of the deceased brother and perpetuate his name in Israel. So here came the Sadducees, no resurrection folks, and they said, now, 
We had a situation here where a man married this woman. He died before they had children. Then his brother married her, and he died. And then another brother married her, and he died. Until seven of those boys had all been married to that same woman. Now let me just pause and parenthetically ask you a question. Can you imagine a family that stupid? I'm telling you, if that had been my brothers dying like that, after probably about the third one, I'd, I'd probably said, let's, uh, let's do a little test here, see what she's feeding my brothers. They're, they're dying off too fast on me here. But they thought they really had Jesus in the dilemma. That, that's why they raised that kind of, I'm going to be gracious to it, that kind of stupid question. No problem with Jesus. He said, you do err not knowing the scriptures. Let me pause just a minute. How many people are right there today? They just don't know the scriptures. The ignorance of the word of God is both alarming and appalling. How many people are so busy watching television and reading the newspaper and this, that, and the other? They don't have time to read the word of God. And they really don't know what the word of God says. So you go back. To Luke 10, what's written in the law and how do you read it? Well, Jesus said, you do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are as the angels of God. Well, I, I love the next statement here in Matthew 22. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, wound them down. Then they had a lawyer, a man that really knew Jewish law. He came and he wanted to know, what's the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is likened unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. So now here's the second dimension of love. Love for neighbor. And my neighbor is not necessarily identified by proximity. You know, you go back to Luke 10, and Jesus raised the question with this man uh, who also knew Jewish law. Uh, who was neighbor? And you've read the story many times. The Good Samaritan, we call it. Who was neighbor? And, and this fellow, at least he was honest enough, that lawyer would say, well, he that showed mercy. And Jesus said, go thou and do likewise. So, loving neighbor. It may be the person next door to me, but it may be a person that I find by the roadside. You know, a lot of folks are by the roadside of life. They have been beaten down by abuses of all kinds. There are people by the roadside of life that have been beaten down by verbal abuse. There are people by the roadside of life that have been beaten down by somebody taking advantage of them. There are scam artists today out there that are preying on people, and particularly older people, and trying to do all they can to get what older people have. If those folks would spend just a part of their time engaged in honest toil, they wouldn't have to take advantage of people. But Aren't we all exposed to this kind of thing constantly? Somebody trying to sell us something. And uh, I have won more free trips the past year than you could possibly imagine. I mean, cruises and this and that and the other. 
you wouldn't believe how many of those things. I mean, they're absolutely free. Well, you better watch it. There are no free lunches. There's a catch down the road. When I think about a friend of mine, he had a call one day. Some organization was collecting things in Nashville, and they said, we'll be by your place, be down that street uh, tomorrow a certain time. Do you have anything that you would donate? He said, I sure do. He said, I've had an old cat that had a bunch of kittens, and I'll have them in a, in a box out by the street, and you can pick them up, be happy to give them to you. That pretty well took care of that. But be that as it may, when I think about loving my neighbor as myself, when I read passages like Romans 13, starting in verse 8, Oh, no man anything but to love one another, or they that loves has fulfilled the law. For all the commandments, this, Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's summarized in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then he says, love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Remember in Galatians 5, when Paul was speaking to people that some of them had been confused by folks coming in and saying, not enough to be a Christian. You're going to have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. If you want to see how, uh, I guess you would say, open those folks were in their assertion, Read Acts 15, because this became a real problem in the churches of Galatia, particularly in the first century. And the apostles and elders convened in Jerusalem to receive instruction from the Holy Spirit of God about the true status of Gentile Christians. And on that occasion, there were some folks that asserted it was necessary for the Gentile Christians to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Well, as it turned out, that was false doctrine, and it was troubling those churches well, you read Galatians 5, and Paul said, You ran well. Who hindered you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion comes not from him that called you a little leaven, leaveneth the whole lump. But I have confidence in you. And, and he goes on to explain that confidence. But then he says, You have been called to liberty. Only use not liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. If you want to see the fulfillment of God's law of love relative to a neighbor, this is it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed lest you be consumed of one another. Have you ever had the experience when your children were small visiting somebody that had a biting kid? Did any of you ever had that experience? And you, you were just kind of nervous. I hope he doesn't bite my kid, you know. Just a biting kid. Well, children can do that. Well, what about adults doing that? Well, I've never seen an adult bite anybody. I'm talking about using words. Have you ever seen anybody bitten with words? I don't think Shakespeare had got a good night's sleep before he wrote these lines. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words never. Well, they may not break your bones, but, brother, they can break your heart. Is there anyone in this audience who has never had his heart broken with words? Somebody 
critical, stabbing you in the back, writing letters about you, derogatory information, or somebody standing in the foyer of a church building and reading your pedigree. Now, you brethren that preach, I'm not the only preacher that's ever had that experience, I'm sure. People just absolutely say, come right out of a worship service and stab you in your heart with words. When I think about Paul saying to these folks, if you bite and devour one another, be real careful. Lest you be consumed. Lest you absolutely break somebody's spirit. Break their heart and break their spirit. That's not loving your neighbors yourself. Love your neighbors yourself. And when we love our neighbor, that's the person that may be in need of my help. That may be the person that's been beaten by the roadside of life with false doctrine. They may have sincerely believed that in order to be saved, you accept Jesus as your personal Savior and pray this sinner's prayer as if you could find that in the Word of God. And they may be trusting their eternal salvation on something as feeble and fragile as human doctrine, beaten by the roadside of life. And then there are people that have been beaten by the roadside of life with circumstances beyond their control and, and things then that are said about them by people who have no earthly idea what they're talking about. When I think of some folks that I know whose hearts have been crushed and broken by something over which they had absolutely no control. People for whom I've wept and prayed, beaten by somebody that didn't care. Beaten by somebody that may have committed to caring and didn't. He said, that's not loving your neighbor. You get into 1 John 3, and uh, he has a great discussion there about what it really means to love a neighbor. He said, uh, if you see your brother in need and, and you don't help, how does the love of God dwell in you? James has a lot to say about that in James chapter 2, you know. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, destitute of daily food, and one of you say, depart in peace, be you warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, you provide not those things which are need for the body. What does it profit? That's faith without works, he says. It's dead. So here's a neighbor. You know what my neighbor may, may, may really need? He may need what I said to a man in West Tennessee one day. If I don't talk to you about your soul, I think the rocks will cry out. So sometimes that's loving a neighbor, you know. You go to a person that's unfaithful and try to get them to come back to the Lord. That's loving your neighbor. You go to a person that's lost and on the road to hell and you try to teach them the way of truth. That's loving your neighbor. 
You go to a person who is struggling with some kind of real serious illness, and you all you can do is just offer words. Well, sometimes you offer healing words, helpful words. Is there anyone in this audience that has never had a spirit uplifted because somebody cared enough to let you know that their pain was your hurt, that their sorrow was your sorrow? You were empathizing. You were walking on beyond sympathizing. And sometimes it's just that arm around you and somebody uttering words sincerely, I love you, that lifts your spirit. I love that word comfort. It's, it's a good Bible word. The, I, I love the English word comfort, but that word from which it's translated, you take the word kaleo from which we got our word church really, put a different prefix with it, parakaleos, palesis. I mean, it's like God says, I'm, I'm just going to put my arm around you. He's called the God of all comfort, right? Second Corinthians 1, 2, and 3. I'm just going to put my arm around you. I'm going to tell you I'm here. I love you, and it'll all be well someday, somehow, some way. Third dimension of love starts out loving God. You love your neighbors yourself. And now this one is difficult for some people. You love yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. That line between selfishness and loving myself may be a very, very narrow line. How can I love myself and not be selfish? Love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love my neighbors myself. I won't be selfish. But if, if I'm going to love you and I can't love myself, I, I may be really hindering my capacity to love you and even love God. I mean, I think I'm a, a, creature, a creature of God too, don't you? Don't you think you were created by the Lord? Don't you think God loves you? Don't you believe God has a special interest in you? Sure you're valuable. How would you evaluate your worth? You're worth more than the world and everything that's in it. Didn't Jesus teach us that? What's a man profited if he gained the whole world, lose his own soul? His own soul. So when I think about loving self, Robert, what time am I supposed to quit? Well, I don't want to impose. Dan, I don't want to impose on. I've lost. I get up here and I forget my time. You say, yeah, I've understood that. But I really have. Okay. They say the longest five minutes in the world is when the preacher says, now in my last five minutes. <laughs> We've talked about th these dimensions of love. It goes straight up to the throne of God. And I love God with all my heart. It goes straight out to you. And I love my brothers and sisters and I love my neighbor, the person that needs me. I love them. And then I look at myself. 
and I love myself. Not in an egotistical way, but believing that Jesus died for me personally as much as he died for you and the whole world. And when I love myself, I want to take care of myself. I love myself enough. I'm not about to abuse my body with, with drugs. I love myself too much to do that. That's incredible to me. To imagine that I would put chemicals in my body that are going to, first of all, destroy my teeth and rob me of years of life, I'm not about to do that. And then when I think about America's number one drug problem, Alcohol. You know, I want to be too much in charge of what's happening for me to deliberately handicap myself. Read Solomon's description of what can happen when you handicap yourself. Kind of like the old boy that came in the next morning, apologized to his wife, and he said, Honey, I'm, I'm sorry I came in last night with uh, these two black eyes. She said, when you came in last night, you didn't have a black eye. <laughs> so I don't want to get myself in a situation where I'm going to be deliberately handicapping myself. No way. So when we learn the great blessing of love, oh, it enriches our souls. It makes life worthwhile. And you can live your life in the realization my God in heaven knows me, and he loves me, come what may. There are many reasons I love this church. Don't have a reason not to. And I am so glad Brother Joe Christopher rode that tractor. And I hope he'll put that tractor on display and put a little ad in the paper. Any of you brethren needing great ideas about things to do, come get my tractor. And thanks to the elders for this great honor. I love Dan and Diane Winkler. Love to be with them. I had the joy for several years of being on Polishing the Pulpit with Brother Wendell Winkler. Great servant of God. And you folks are my people and those with whom I expect to live forever in the sweet by and by. And just to have a little foretaste of that now thrills my heart and soul.